From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge. I'm Amanda, and along with the lawyers and experts here at Lanyon Bowdler, I'll be bringing you a series of podcasts that cover many aspects of law in England and Wales. It's our aim to show you that the law isn't scary, and nor are our lawyers. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by getting in touch through the website lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, Neil Davis and Lucy Speed from the Court of Protection Department give an insight into the Court of Protection. They talk about the recent Britney Spears case and how this would have been dealt with differently in the UK. Hi, I'm Lucy. And I'm Neil. We're going to talk today about a few things in the Court of Protection. There are a number of things in the news quite often about the Court of Protection, but we thought to begin with it might be helpful to give you a little bit of a background on what the Court of Protection is because it's not something that everybody knows about. Well, spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about Britney Spears. <laughs> give the cat's out the bag on, on that one. Um, that's sort of the hot issue that's in the news really, isn't it? So we're going to be having a look at that and the issues that have been raised in, in the, the high profile of that case. We'll be looking at how that system operates in the United States, the the conservatorship that um, her father has over Brittany and how we think that might operate or have operated had it been in in the UK. And the differences in how it might have been dealt with within the court. What we're going to look at first for people out there who perhaps haven't come across, you know, what we call mental capacity law or capacity decision-making is just to establish what we mean by that. So really we're talking about a person's ability to make a decision. Whatever that decision might be. That's right. And in this country, the Court of Protection has the jurisdiction to make decisions on behalf of people who lack capacity to make those decisions themselves. So we thought it'd be really useful to have a look at how that got established in this country and then, you know, compare it with where the United States is really. It can be traced back as far back as the 14th century, during the reign of of Edward II, where there was this system that operated. And uh, people who were under a disability or incapacity, I mean, obviously they... Didn't refer to it as such at the time. You took the words out of my mouth, absolutely. They they didn't talk in those PC terms. People were either labelled as lunatics or idiots. Which is very unkind. Uh, Very unkind. And that actually remained the terminology until the Mental Health Act in 1959. I think the duration of that terminology will probably surprise a lot of people. Yeah, about 700 years of un-PC terminology. Yeah, really rather unpleasant terminology. Yeah, but it was an important distinction at the time because lunatics were those people who perhaps had a sudden onset of, of incapacity. I suppose that's comparative with somebody who may have sustained a stroke or a brain injury. And they, they were termed as lunatics. And the people who had a deficiency from birth were termed idiots. So that's more like a learning difficulty or something you're born yeah, with. Yeah, and the distinction was important because the, the Crown, who was the decision-making power at the time, decided that, so far as lunatics were concerned, the Crown had an obligation to look after them, maintain them and their household, but the Crown could not take any of their money for themselves. So when the person died, there would be a surplus that would be handed over to their administrators. Idiots not so lucky, <laughs> subject to very paternalistic arrangements, so that basically, you know, they weren't treated in the same way as lunatics, and the, yes, the, the Crown could 
maintain them, but I, I suspect it was the bare minimum that the Crown had to do, knowing that it, it would be able to take the profits from that person's estate. No doubt it's some kind of profit for the Crown as well. Yeah, absolutely. We move through the reign of Henry VIII, who established the Court of Wards and, and Liveries, and actually put into statute the arrangement whereby any, any surplus left over would, would pass to the, the person's administrators and, and executors. Moving through to the Victorian era in 1842, there were commissioners in lunacy were, were established, and they had powers to hold inquisitions and to perform duties that would previously have been dealt with by the Lord Chancellor in the Chancery Court. And we have the Lunacy Act of 1845, and the two commissioners got a job title change and they they became the masters in lunacy which is a terrific term um, and then moving forward to the lunacy act in 1890 the masters then acquired the power to make their own orders and effectively became judges then in the 20th century the lunacy office as it was known was renamed brilliantly as the management and administration department and then in 1947 we finally and eventually get to its current title which is the court of protection Although at that time it wasn't a court, it was basically an admin wing. The Mental Health Act, um, 1959, as well as abandoning that archaic terminology that we were talking about before, established a master of the Court of Protection whose functions were to consider medical evidence and then to determine whether he or she was satisfied that a person was, by reason of mental disorder, incapable of managing their property and affairs and, and lunatics and idiots became known as patients of note is it was just to do with property and affairs. So there was no health and welfare provision at all then? Not as we know now. Moving through 1989 the Law Commission did its report and brought in draft form this single piece of envisaged legislation known as the Mental Capacity Act and a Code of Practice. There was a new statutory definition of incapacity there was talk about having a best interests test and the court was to establish what were known as deputies or were previously been known as receivers. They were people appointed by the court to make decisions. It was envisaged that this would broaden out and include health and welfare as, as well as property and affairs. It got put on the back burner a bit and then eventually, as we know, 1st of October 2007, the Mental Capacity Act came into force I thought it would be quite useful just very, very briefly to go through the five principles of the Mental Capacity Act because they're the important building blocks of the Act, but also it's useful to have them in mind when we're talking about what's gone in the Brittany case in the United States. So we start off with the presumption that everybody has capacity, and so you, you, you have to overturn that presumption with evidence before you can start to talk about making decisions on somebody else's behalf. What would evidence that somebody lacks capacity look like? Because I know that we quite often get questions where people are worried that someone's making a decision that might not seem very sensible and they wonder if that in itself is evidence of incapacity. We get such questions and we arrange for an assessment to take place by somebody suitably qualified to carry out a mental capacity assessment doesn't have to be a GP, doesn't have to be a medical practitioner as such, it could be a qualified social worker, speech and language therapist, 
but somebody who's au fait and used to dealing with these assessments. And it can be somebody that knows the person as well, can't it? Like their usual GP or their usual speech and language therapist. So somebody who's familiar to them. And there's a lot to be said for that because the code of practice and the five principles encourage the person is to be supported in their decision making. Absolutely. So somebody who knows them well is going to know how they operate in terms of their decision making capacity and whether that fluctuates or not, you know, depending on certain times of, of the day, etc. So, yeah, that would that would be really Im- important. And then in terms of determining whether somebody has got decision making capacity, it's it's all about you've got to look specifically at what what is the decision that is being made. So is it a person having to decide about whether they want to live at home or in a care home? Are there some decisions that are easier than others for the purposes of assessing capacity? Well, I think it's fair to say that in assessing capacity, there's two parts of the test. There's the diagnostic test, so the person has to be suffering from some sort of impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or the brain, and leading on from that, that then has to cause there to be an inability of that person to understand the information relevant to the decision to be able to retain it, to use or weigh it and to communicate it. So in, in terms of whether you could say some decisions are easier or more difficult, I think it's fair to say it very much depends on what the decision that the person's got to make. So they've got to be able to understand and use and weigh up, et cetera, et cetera, the relevant information. So the, the information that's relevant will differ massively. Yeah. So some decisions could have very little information to use and weigh. Others could have quite a lot. If I thought, for example, of somebody who was looking to get married and there was a concern about whether they had the capacity to marry, that would be really different factors than somebody who was looking to manage all of their you know, multi-million pound property and affairs with very complex setups. They'd have very different things to use and weigh in those decisions. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think you've had a couple of cases where you, you've had to think about the decision-making capacity for a person specifically in relation to relationships and use of the internet and I suppose it's fair to say in in those situations the threshold for whether they pass the test or not. It's very difficult to tell in many ways because you're obviously talking about things that are exactly right and really important about the relevant information to use and weigh but for some decisions what I've found in, in a few of my cases is it's not always that there's a checklist of information they need to use and weigh and for example if you're talking about internet use it's all well and good talking about you know the kind of browsing that you or I would do in the office but that's very very different than somebody going on tinder or somebody going on a dating site and therefore you almost have to take a further step backwards and think about well what are the factors this person needs to use and weigh and I know amongst professionals there's been an amount of debate about the kind of things they need to understand in those cases. They're quite interesting cases, aren't they? Very if, much. If, if not purely for the reason of, of a judge trying to <laughs> grapple with Tinder. <laughs> yes, well, I did. I did hear a barrister uh, at one of the conferences I went to around the time this was becoming a live issue for me, explaining that their junior had to uh, produce a list of what was an app and what was not an app for a judge, which I imagine was a very lengthy list to be honest um I I don't know how many apps I've got on my phone but it's a lot and I imagine if you are one of the people uh who 
you know, rely on their phone quite a lot. You might have even more. And in particular, if having a smartphone is new and exciting to you for one reason or another, you may have pretty much untold number of apps, many of which do similar things to each other. But you do have to get into the bones of each of those apps and work out whether it is similar or whether it is the same or whether actually it's different. In that sense, senior judge Lush, who was the original the master of the court of protection and the senior judge was ahead of his time because I remember reading um, a, a, a decision on a, on a case that he'd heard and this is probably going back several years where the the, the acronym JMMORPG came up within <laughs> the context of, of the case whatever it's to do with I can't remember and he just went oh yes Japanese multi yeah, player massively online, online yeah, role playing, role playing game, and just knew straight away. <laughs> Which is one of those moments where I find in court of protection. I know certainly for both of us, and when we're in the office, I'll summon you over to my desk fairly frequently for your kind of breadth of knowledge. You find that you you become a bit of an expert in this massive array of very disparate things because you're dealing with clients who have such different interests and although having said that I do you know really like to think of senior judge less playing MMORPGs himself in his own time well it was very impressive even if he'd gone on to make the wrong decision in the case you could have forgiven him for like having that alone (laughs) just to hand at a you know a moment's notice is quite impressive yeah Uh, if I just pick up again on where we had got to with the five principles but because we went off on a tangent but it was fine it was a very good tangent (laughs) more tangents please um we have uh moving on the right the person has the right to make an unwise decision so just because a person makes a decision that we might consider unwise doesn't automatically mean we can jump to the conclusion that they lack capacity and i'm going to go on a rant now because this is a bugbear of mine i hear it quite often and i'm not going to say by who or which class of people I, I have dealings with. I've dealt with quite a few cases where the court has already decided that this person lacks capacity to make a decision, for example, about their financial affairs. And I'm dealing with other professionals. They say, oh, yeah, but you've got to let them make unwise decisions, don't you? Basically meaning we're going to take a non-interventionist a- a- approach to getting involved or, you know, infringing their human rights or whatever. And it's a it's a bugbear of mine because you know the unwise decision thing is part of the process for assessing whether somebody's got capacity in in the first place. It, it's not to do with this thing where you you trot out this phrase, oh, you got to make unwise decisions. Basically, you know. I agree, and I remember on our client feedback, one of my clients specifically said that he liked working with me because sometimes I said no to him, and then when he looked back a few days later he'd realised that was the correct decision. And if I'd taken that non-interventionist approach that some people have a tendency towards, that client would be left significantly out of pocket and feeling rather regretful a few days after their you know, initial impulsive yeah. wish. But the reason why that's in there, in, in the five principles, the right to make the unwise decision, what it's effectively saying is that we're not concerned with the outcome of the decision. So when we're assessing somebody's capacity we're looking at the process, we're looking at their psychological abilities to make a specific decision and we're not concerned with the outcome. And that's why I can spend hundreds of pounds on Lego without you getting upset. 
Well, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever questioned your capacity uh, to, to do that or buy the Lego in the first place. You know, that, that, Fortunately. That, that's not for me. That would be outside the bounds of my role <laughs> as, as line manager, etc. You know, I think there's, there's also a, a tendency with this unwise decision thing that it's very easy that when we're dealing with people who have perhaps been assessed by the court as lacking capacity... Let, let's not forget, so for, say, for example, I've been appointed as a financial deputy for somebody, and I have a court order that says, yeah, that person lacks capacity to make a, a, a decisions or a decision about their financial affairs. Even despite that, I've only got jurisdiction to make you know, a best interest decision on their behalf where, where they lack capacity. And so you know, that, that, that can vary. And I think there is a tendency to you know, this unwise decision that it's very easy to look at the outcome of what somebody has decided and say, well, that's just an example of where they lack capacity. And it's not the case at all. And those orders, as you highlighted, and I just want to kind of come back to and stress, because I think it's really important, they don't mean that even if a person does have a deputy for property and affairs appointed, it doesn't mean that that person can't make any decisions with regard to their property and affairs. It's about taking a decision by decision consideration, isn't it, about whether they can deal with something or not, not a blanket rule one way or the other. That's right, and that fits in with one of the other five principles, which is to taking a least restrictive approach. So that's another principle that we're required to do. You know, is there a less restrictive way in, in which the person could be, you know, make the decision or be supported. It's not as simple as if a decision is a small amount of money, somebody is more likely to have capacity to make it against. If it's a larger amount of money, they're less likely to have capacity to make that decision because there can be a number of factors that feed into each of those decisions. So you can't have any blanket rules, even about the value of a decision. No, you, you can't. I mean, you can generalise, but then it's even dangerous to generalise because what you then find is that a generalisation can become a presumption. Finally, within the five principles, once a decision has been made or a determination has been made that a person lacks capacity, then any decisions and acts done on their behalf must be in that person's best interests. The Act and the Code of Practice doesn't specifically define best interests, but the Act at Section 4 does explain how you would determine what factors go into the pot if you like to come up with a best interest decision so by way of kind of summary can you give me the the headlines of what we call those five points to summarize there's there's a presumption of capacity that we have to overturn a person has got the right to be supported in making a decision before we come to the conclusion that they lack capacity they've got a right to make an unwise decision the decisions and acts done on their behalf must be in their best interest and we must adopt a least restrictive approach and it's good to summarize those because those will become quite pertinent in the Britney Spears case which we'll go on to discuss in a moment so the final thing I think I wanted to say that will probably lead us quite nicely into the Britney conversation is that the court of protection has powers to make a decision or decisions about a person who lacks capacity, it also has the power to appoint a deputy over that person's property and affairs or personal welfare. And the court will do so rather than make a one-off decision itself. It will appoint a deputy to do that on a person's behalf if it's pretty likely that there's going to be 
continuous decision making to be made on on behalf of the person who lacks capacity or a series of of linked decisions thereby it avoids the person then having to go back to the court and on every separate occasion in particular where that's time sensitive it'd be a big problem wouldn't it it would be yeah And, and and you know the court wouldn't be able to cope as we know at the moment the court is struggling to cope with the amount of applications it normally has so you know it would avoid the need for that and the role of the deputy in this country leads us quite neatly into the issue of Britney Spears, who has been in the news in relation to the arrangements that are in place for her in the United States. Absolutely. And I think we've all seen hashtags like Free Britney uh, and discussions around things being done against her wishes and her being really unhappy with the arrangements. Mm. And I think that probably you know both of us have got some experience of cases where somebody might approach and they're not necessarily happy with arrangements in place for them at present Mm. and they want to have those discussions but you know evidently discussions perhaps didn't work out for Brittany and it's ended up having to go before judges am I right yeah the arrangements and the arrangements go back to about 2008 yeah they're they're really quite historic I think it was like while I was in uni (laughs) yeah that this was put into place so you know they've been around for really quite some time and I imagine you were probably listening to her music at the time naturally all of the time yeah long time fan (laughs) yeah clearly what are you going to do with that little bit of toxic in your life (laughs) (laughs) well I understand it was around the the time of the the album Blackout there you go (laughs) just ironic very very pleased with your Britney knowledge there Neil well done (laughs) (laughs) So, since 2008, these arrangements have been in place, known as a conservatorship, and specifically, as we know, the law in the United States is dealt with it at at state level. So the arrangements that have been in place for Brittany are under the the Californian Probate Code, whereby her father has been appointed by the court as her conservator. Is that quite normal for a person's parent to be appointed in the, you know, over here... Would it be common for us to see somebody's parent appointed as a deputy for property and affairs? Well, I think so. I think it's quite common, but I wonder whether it would happen in somebody with affairs as complex as Britney Spears. Mm. Because, you know, I don't know all of her personal details, but I imagine when you're doing things like, you know, long-standing Las Vegas shows, etc., I imagine that those affairs are rather complex Mm. in terms Mm. of both funds coming in, funds going out, lots and lots of financial arrangements. It doesn't appear to me to necessarily be straightforward. We'd probably see that over here. So, you know, the, when deciding who to appoint as the deputy in, in the in, in the law of England and Wales, then the court does have this, I guess if you want to call it a, a hierarchy, and it would normally start with family members, somebody who is known to the person who lacks capacity and that's really important but you do find that for example a lot of the cases that we deal with where people have received multi-million pound awards of compensation for the injuries that they've received for example in, in a car collision then the court will depart from that hierarchy list on it, it would want a professional to be appointed so I think by virtue of that argument I suppose you know is it a bit odd that her dad was appointed because usually you know neither of us are I don't suppose very many people are experts on on the arrangements under the Californian probate code but the court over there does have the power to appoint 
a private person. So to that extent, perhaps it was, you know, on the cards that there's going to be difficulties where, you know, a parent's appointed. And, you know, that that's, according to, to Brittany's version of events, that's exactly what's happened. Well, I was going to say, I know I have quite a few younger clients uh, that are coming into adulthood at the moment, and indeed some older clients who will often say to me, oh, don't tell my my mum about this or don't tell my dad about this. And it's because, you know, these are more private personal matters Mm. that it wouldn't be um, something you'd like to chat to your mum about over Sunday dinner, perhaps. Uh, You know, you you might not like to have those discussions about, you know, I want to go to the GP about breast augmentation or I want to sort out you know my my internet or my tv service so that i can access certain channels they might not wish to bring that up with their parents so i think as well as you know the fact that perhaps you can foresee issues with some appointments over here in england and wales one of the good things is that changes can be made Mm. and that it wouldn't be entirely impossible or unreasonable for somebody to have quite a sensible discussion quite early on about who they wanted to be appointed and it wouldn't be terribly unusual for as an example a teenage boy to say mum no offense I'm, I'm not really interested in you being my deputy I'd like somebody else to be my deputy. I expect that when the the original order was made the identity of, of who would act on Britney's half would have been something that the judge would have had to to consider. Just it's worth mentioning just very briefly that in California they have two types of conservatorship. One is known as an LPS conservatorship and the other is a probate conservatorship. The first one is I think subject to an initial temporary period and then it has to be renewed annually. Uh, which is something to be said for that. Whereas the probate conservatorship once it's made like that's it forever until the court you know revokes that by further order so that's probably similar to a lot of deputy ships that the court of protection makes over here i mean it can make it can make time limited ones it can but more commonly i see and and you may see as well orders that are you know non-time limited although there is an obligation on the deputy that if the person recovers capacity yeah. to manage their property and affairs the deputy would need to make an application to the court to discharge that deputy ship yeah and i think probably we both have some experience of that happening not necessarily terribly often but it can and does happen and it's not as simple as there's an order and that's it now you have to keep that in mind suffice to say that it was a probate conservatorship that was granted in in Brittany's case under under the probate code in California I was looking to see what sort of considerations they have to to make when they're making that appointment and what sort of considerations remain in place for the duration of the conservatorship and it's interesting to see that under the code it says that no conservatorship of the person I should just say at this point they can grant an order over the person or over the estate. So if it's over the estate, it's their financial affairs. If it's over the person, it's to do with their their welfare. Like in this country, property and affairs, health and welfare. So the arrangements that were in place for Brittany were were in relation to to both of those. Anyway, under the probate code, it says, no no conservatorship of the person or the estate shall be granted by the court unless the court makes an express finding that the granting of the conservatorship is the least restrictive alternative needed for the protection of the conservatee. That's familiar, isn't it, that from that language mm. that we, we've seen in the principles of the Mental Capacity Act. 
and it does also say that the arrangements must provide that the periodic review of the conservatorship by the court investigator shall consider the best interests of the conservatory. There again, the, we've got the best interests terminology, although applied in, in a very specific context that it's under the powers of a court investigator to look at that whenever there's a periodic review. We don't know all the details, but it seemed that something's gone a bit wrong, given that these arrangements are meant to be subject to a, a periodic review. Certainly, Brittany appears to be unsatisfied. Yeah, and so this that's right. And all this has been come to a head over June and July of, of 2021, where she has made allegations that the arrangements that she has been subject to would, I suppose, in terms that we might use in the UK, breached her human rights. And some of her complaints have also included allegations of financial abuse by her father, as in, in his role as her conservator. Is that something that we see very often over here, these kinds of allegations, yes. in your experience? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. So... Um, You've dealt with a number of these cases, haven't you? Well, look under the yeah under the code of practice over here, mental capacity code of practice. It, it uh, basically it says that a deputy has got a, f- a fiduciary duty, so they can't put themselves in a position of conflict when looking after somebody's money. Unfortunately, we, we you know we do see and we do have things said by family members and people who come to see us of of cases of financial abuse occurring so we're not exempt from it over in the UK. Absolutely not part of your expertise and your particular expertise isn't it is dealing with cases where people are concerned that that is happening either to themselves or a loved one and you're able to assist whether that is before a deputy's in place or afterwards. I know you've helped a lot of people in those circumstances. I've dealt with quite a few cases where, for example, somebody has been appointed by somebody's attorney under a power of attorney, which which isn't a court arrangement, that's a private arrangement. But concerns have been raised about the actions of the attorney, for example, not paying the care home fees, not letting them have enough money, trying to exclude who they can see and have contact with, effectively isolating them things happening with their bank account that don't look quite right, taking them off to see a solicitor to make a new will, all of this stuff. And I think we've seen before, haven't we, that sometimes people will be worried that they can't necessarily prove things because, for example, they may hear from their elderly relative that they've been taken by some contact that's popped up to the cash point four times in a day but given they don't have any authority over that elderly relative's bank account they may not be able Mm. to obtain the information and they worry about evidencing Mm -hmm. it yeah but that is something that you've been able to help with on occasion isn't it yeah absolutely and i think probably is a little bit different over here in the uk so for example in in britney's case and the law as it stands there under the probate code of that particular state of california this is actually brought about people petitioning for a new law is that under the 
arrangements over there. Yes, you can go and get rid of your conservator, but you have to be able to prove, actually prove financial abuse. Over here, I dealt with a case where there was a family member who was financially abusing an older person, and we started court proceedings, and we got to the point where we were satisfied that, you know, we we didn't have to actually prove you know that that the person had been dishonest, uh, yeah. like on a, on a criminal, you yeah. know, level. You know the the kind of intent behind yeah. it. You didn't have to go and prove that it was deliberate financial abuse, and they had all these nefarious intentions. That's right. It was sufficient. The court found that it was sufficient that they basically had taken advantage of the older person, and and so you know we were able to have the deputy discharged and have a new will made for the person as well, because the person had got themselves included in the new will of the person. But that's another story. In terms of Brittany, yes, there was a hearing in July. She made these allegations of financial abuse against her father. And as I understand it, he has since filed to terminate his appointment. Now, I'm sure that was just a coincidence with the allegations of financial abuse. It did rather appear that the relationship had broken down, which I think is a a term that we hear over here, and perhaps it wasn't pulled out quite over there, but, you know, at the point where there are serious allegations of financial abuse, it's probably not going that well, is it? Absolutely, and and as I said, the allegations coincided with the decision by him to to terminate his appointment, so he's filed for that. And I understand that her father has filed to terminate his own appointment. And I understand that at the time of us talking about this, that the case is to be heard on the 29th of September. A couple of days from now. So I'm sure that uh, depending on when this airs, everyone will either be watching or will have watched with bated breath what yeah, goes on. Yeah. And we'll also see what happens with this bill that they have started to push through. So two members of the House of Representatives are putting, trying to push through what's known as the FREE Bill. So FREE is an acronym which stands for the Freedom and Right to Emancipate from Exploitation. Which is catchy and nothing to do at all with hashtag Free Britney. Well, arguably. <laughs> <laughs> if the bill goes through, there'll be an act and it will basically say you can change your court-appointed conservator without having to actually prove financial abuse. There will be an independent caseworker appointed to your case and the conservator must produce annual reports. Now that sounds like, like that sounds like a good idea. It doesn't does, it? doesn't it? Yeah, we're a bit familiar with those, aren't we? Yeah. So we, uh, for people listening, we we already have those arrangements in the UK where when a deputy for financial affairs is appointed, he or she must produce an annual report. And that report goes to the Office of the Public Guardian, who is a government department who is responsible for supervising deputies. Also important is the Office of the Public Guardian has powers to investigate allegations of abuse. So people who are concerned about family members or friends who may be being financially abused come and see a solicitor, go and see a solicitor, but also you can make your concerns known to the Office of the Public Guardian who have the powers to investigate the allegations. And what happens if a deputy doesn't put in reports or the reports contain concerning information? But the people at the Office of the Public Guardian get very annoyed. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what, step one. That's step one. Um, they make their annoyance known to, to the person and the, the person will be given a deadline to either provide the information or clarify the information that's already 
being given ultimately if that person doesn't then comply with the date set by the Office of the Public Guardian. The ultimate recourse is then for the Public Guardian to make an application for the court to consider removing the deputy from that position. Interesting question for you, just finishing off our discussion about the Brittany case. Do you think the publicity would have happened in the same way had this been a person who was a UK artist and citizen? I think the publicity would likely have been very, very different over here. Um, Obviously, Brittany's in a unique position because not so much you maybe, Neil, but she's very well loved. Uh, You know, she's very important to a a number of people. Uh, But also over here, we have different rules, don't we, about reporting on these cases and, and how they can be covered. Yes, specifically we do in the Court of Protection. What, what, what had happened originally when the Mental Capacity Act came into force, the cases that were heard in the Court of Protection would have been heard in private. And unfortunately, this gave rise to allegations in the media that we were dealing with what was termed as the secret court. And, and that phrase featured heavily in a lot of articles published by the tabloids. But it led to changes and development in in the practice of the court, whereby we now have a situation when the court is holding hearings, it can decide whether to still hold them in in private, and that will be largely to do with considerations of the privacy of the person who lacks capacity, or it can hold them in public. If on the court list it says public, you can make arrangements with the court to go along, but all the parties who attend, and that includes the parties in the case plus members of the public who have gone along, will be subject to signing what's known as a transparency order and that will basically say that there are restrictions on you being able to talk about this and to name the persons involved in the case and to publish information about it. Now in a high profile case the court could decide to lift reporting restrictions completely and and so there's an argument, you know, would that have happened in the Brittany case? And I think it's, we were talking about this earlier, and there's a couple of cases that happened. For example, the Stephen Neary case, which involved an autistic gentleman who'd been subject to a succession of arrangements under the local authority that deprived him of his liberty. That was campaigned so heavily by his family that the judge who had to make a decision about whether to impose reporting restrictions just decided it would be unrealistic and a nonsense, you know, when everybody knew... All Everything about, about yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And then we, we had the case of the feminist and politician Manuela Sykes when her case came before the court. The wishes and feelings of the person who lacks capacity played a heavy part because she was definitely the, a person saying, I want this in the media yeah. about what is happening to me in the court of protection. And, the, you know, the judge who, who heard this, you know, concurred with that. So arguably... Given all that, then we might have found, you know, everything all over the papers in the UK, notwithstanding the fact it's in the court of protection. I wonder if over here the tabloids would have developed a good grasp on how the court of protection works or whether we would have seen perhaps some of the old myths resurface. And if not seeing the old myths resurface, perhaps we would have been muddling our way through tabloid articles going, well, what does that word mean? That's not a word we use in the court of protection. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to judge or, or generalise, but, you know, you, you could imagine the a lot of the 
pay, it's a lot pay, to get a lot to of the grips pay, with. Yeah, it is a lot to get to grips with, and, and a lot, and some inaccuracies coming out, you know, and references references to the secret court. Naturally. Um, it's uh, a very catchy title, albeit not right. That's right, it's one that's not going to go away. Just one final thing I, I wanted to consider. I think this is a pertinent difference between how the court operated in, in the US and, and how it might have had the case been before the Court of Protection, is the human rights aspect of the person who who lacks capacity because a lot of the complaints that Brittany was levelling against her father where over here they they would breach her article rights under the European Convention on Human Rights particularly Article 5 Liberty and Article 8 Privacy. We also have the European Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities under European law we're, we're still tied in with that and that pushes us in a, in a direction of considering the rights of persons with disabilities. So, again, you know, that's a means by which possibly over here these allegations might have been heard a lot earlier. I would hope so, and I would hope that, you know, obviously you'd like to think that these things would have been heard earlier, and we don't know all of the details of everything that happened over there with Brittany. However, certainly I'm sure that both of us would like to think that if anything like this was happening on any deputy ship, in England and Wales, it would be dealt with much sooner because clearly Brittany's effectively had to get to a crisis point where she's really had to ramp up the public pressure. She certainly felt she had to do that rather than it being dealt with much sooner before everybody was under quite so much pressure. Thanks to Neil and Lucy for lending their expertise. Yet more proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. And if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show and find any of the conversations interesting or helpful, please remember to use your podcast app to follow The Legal Lounge so that you never miss an episode. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.